Hello all and a warm welcome to Season 2, Episode Number 5 of the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast. I'm Paul, the creator and host of the show, and I thank you guys for joining me for the episode. I hope that this episode finds you all good and well. Thanks very much for the new enthusiasts who followed and supported the show this week, as well as the continued feedback about the show and the very kind reviews that I've been getting. You guys are the best listeners ever. As I did mention the other week, I'm planning a mini Ask Me Anything Within Reason kind of episode, and the invite is now out for any burning questions for me concerning the show, the research, the blackboard, shoe size, star sign, cuddly toy, whatever. It's planned for a few weeks down the line when I manage to clear a bit of a window in my busy schedule to do it, so there's plenty of time yet, no worries. I'm pleased to say that also coming up in a few weeks on the show is another episode consisting solely of cases that have been written and researched by you guys. I've some great ones that I've received so far, and I know there are some in the works as well, so I look forward to hosting them because last time I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I was asked recently by a friend who listens to the show why I only ever promote true crime podcasts on it, and I told him that it only seems right because it's the same kind of genre. I mean, if I recommended a podcast about Harry Potter or the history of concrete, it wouldn't kind of fit on the show, really, I don't think. Plus, there's always plenty to share. The true crime community has a very well put together database that we all share with lots of great promos on it to lots of great shows. So the ones I'm going to use this week for the fellow true crime podcasts that I'm going to recommend are two of my absolute favourites, Felon and the Asian Madness podcast. They're two absolutely great shows that I'm sure many of you know and already enjoy. And if you don't, well, let's see if Brod and Jessica can convince you of what you're missing if I can't. I'll hand it over to those guys now. This is Broderick Ashmole host of Felon True Crime, a podcast that takes a look at some of the more obscure cases from Australia. Felon has been described by various listeners as the following. Creepy and atmospheric. Intriguing, sad and real. A spine-tingling take on true crime. It's more than just storytelling. It's factual and emotional. It's an experience. It's respectful, but doesn't shy away from the gory details. If these comments have caught your attention, and it sounds like a podcast you'd like to experience for yourself, you can subscribe to Felon on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Felon True Crime, the underbelly of the land down under. Do you like true crime, mysteries, or urban legends, and maybe anything along the lines of weird? If your answer is yes, please give the Asian Madness podcast a go, where I cover all of the topics mentioned above, but from the Asian continent. Podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Get on them all. Excellent shows, and I know that you won't be disappointed with them at all. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, for a first on the show, I've made the jump across the Irish Sea to Dublin to cover an intriguing case that was unknown to me and one that I came across when I was researching a future case for the show. It concerns a dangerous and cruel individual responsible for some of the most infamous and despised crimes in Irish history, crimes I believe that could just be the tip of the iceberg. I also apologise for any listeners in Ireland if I pronounce any place names wrong uh, mentioned in the episode. I don't think that I have, but if you know that I do, please by all means get in touch and correct me. 
This week's episode does contain descriptions of crime that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion, guys. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as this week we look back at the case of the Ronan's Park murders. Number 57 St. Ronan's Park in the Dublin suburb of Ronanstown was to some years ago bear witness to similar horrors inside that residents of Gloucester in England still to this day remember that concerned the appalling discoveries that were made in a house there, one of the most infamous addresses in British history, 25 Cromwell Street. Number 57 is today a nondescript house in the middle of an estate, just 400 yards or so from the local Garda station. It looks like a million other houses of its kind across the country, but in the early 1990s it was the scene of the horrific murders and mutilations of two women within the space of less than a year and crimes that shocked the country. Like the victims of the Wests in Cromwell Street, both victims at number 57 were totally defenceless at the time of the murders. Both had had their hands restrained behind their backs in bondage practices and so could not defend or save themselves when they were both choked to death by a man that they both trusted. Then when each woman was dead, both times their killer then hacked their bodies into pieces and disposed of them in the most callous and undignified way possible. It was the early hours of September the 12th, 1991, when neighbours on either side of number 57 St. Ronan's Park were awoken by the sounds of a violent row emanating from number 57. This wasn't much of a surprise to neighbours there. Rows and sounds of screaming and shouting were quite a regular occurrence from the house, but this one continued for a number of hours well into the early morning. One resident, Mary O'Neill, remembered, all hell breaking loose next door. I heard her screaming and roaring curses at an awful rate. So the row continued until about four in the morning when the sounds of the furious argument were matched with the sounds of two children crying. Now normally, if you hear something like this, a natural instinct would be to head over to see if everything was okay or to even telephone the police. But the other residents of St. Ronan's Park had gotten quite used to this kind of thing. The couple who lived at number 57, 39-year-old Michael Bambrick and his 42-year-old common-law wife Patricia McGorley, They were always fighting, usually after one or both had had a few drinks. One minute they'd be scrapping and going hell for leather in a violent fight with each other, and the next thing they'd be made up and off down to the pub like nothing had happened. So because of this, people were a bit loath to get involved really and would leave them to it. But this row was a lot more serious than others. Michael and Patricia had met nine years earlier, both on the back of a failed marriage. Patricia was one of four children and had been born in Dublin on the 19th of December 1948. She was educated at George's Hill Convent in the North City Centre and upon leaving there in 1962 went to work at Burton's Associated Tailors on Dublin's New Street where she was to remain for the next five years. Between 1967 and 1978 Patricia worked at a variety of jobs including spells at Crean's Soap Factory on North King Street and in the clothing factory on Bridgefoot Street. While she was employed at the soap factory, she began a relationship with a man called John McGorley, and not long afterwards the couple were married. The ceremony took place in the registry office on Kildare Street in 1976, and the newlywed couple moved into a flat in Wellington Street. 
but from the outset the marriage was not a happy nor a stable one. Both Patricia and John were heavy drinkers and they had frequent rows. After just a few months of marriage, the couple split up and found separate flats to live in, which they did do for several months. They did attempt a reconciliation, however, but the rows and heavy drinking continued, and the relationship's death knell came when Patricia moved back in with her mother. She nor John kept in touch after this, and they didn't see each other for many years. But on Valentine's Day 1981, when Patricia was drinking with some friends and acquaintances at the Legal Eagle pub opposite Dublin's Four Courts, she had a chance encounter with him, the first time that she'd seen her estranged husband in over four years. As both were still heavy drinkers and had been drinking heavily all that day and well into the evening, a furious row and altercation happened between the two in the pub and Patricia fled the premises to escape from him. As she was drunkenly making her way along the street a short distance away, she was chanced upon by two men who grabbed her, dragged her into a remote alleyway and raped her. Two men were arrested by the Garda later and were charged with the attack, but all charges were forced to be dropped against them when Patricia failed to turn up in court to give evidence and both accused were set free. It was on the back of a sad, destructive existence like this that she met Michael Bambrick and like Patricia, he too was a heavy drinker who had a failed marriage behind him. He'd been born in England in 1952, and was the youngest of the three sons of William and Edith Bambrick. His father was a native of Kilkenny, and was on his second marriage by the time Michael had arrived, as William's first wife had died when the couple's three daughters, Bambrick's three half-sisters, were very small. And in what was probably commonplace at the time, Although seemingly really heartless, after his wife's funeral, William immediately placed all three girls into care and emigrated to the UK. Here he quickly met Edith, who was to become his second wife and who he went on to have sons Mervyn, Kevin and Michael with. In 1957, the family returned to Ireland to live in Dublin's Keogh Square, where they were to remain for the next 11 years before moving to Rossmore Avenue in Ballyfermot. Mervyn, the eldest child, soon afterwards returned to Britain to live and work, while the two younger boys remained with their parents. Kevin and Michael were like chalk and cheese. Whilst Kevin was described as the ambitious, enthusiastic and active one, Michael was extremely lazy, unruly and disruptive. Most days he either stayed in bed or hung around watching television, and when he wasn't doing this, he was causing no end of problems for his parents instead. He had an uncontrollable temper, and this led to many serious rows in the household, with a number of times manifesting itself with Michael smashing up furniture and decorations, kicking in doors and putting windows through. On one occasion, he even attacked and battered his own mother, leaving her severely bruised. I mean, how pissed off have you got to be to hit your own mum like that? Terrible. So Michael was an academic non-starter, and was to leave school with no qualifications. He couldn't hold down a steady job due to his uncontrollable temper and general bad attitude, but by age 20 it was hoped he had finally grown up and turned a corner. He met a young woman called Marie Hayes in July 1972, and after a whirlwind courtship, the couple were married in December 1972 and moved into a flat in Dublin's Rathmines Road area. At the time, and I don't know what it's like now, I've only ever been to Dublin once and I pretty much only remember the Guinness factory and the ensuing hangover. But at the time, 
Rathmines Road largely consisted of budget accommodation and bedsits. This in turn attracted many students and young struggling families to the area and such a social mix in a busy place meant there was a large proportion of crime and drug use in the area at the time. Not long after the Bambricks moved here, Marie was to discover that she was pregnant and this forced the couple to the conclusion that Michael would have to get a job. This still hadn't happened by August 1973, with Michael having no inclination to work and provide for his family, and seemingly no idea of the responsibility that marriage brings. On the 30th of August 1973, Marie gave birth to the couple's child, a son that they named Alan. Baby Alan. Now apologies to anyone who's called Alan, it's just a name that I find hard to associate with a newborn baby really. It seems to be a name that's from years gone by and has nowadays been replaced with something more fashionable like Chantel or Champagne or something awful like that. But then again, I suppose Paul is a bit the same now, isn't it? It's not as fashionable. Is it? Don't know. Not sure. So just before Marie gave birth, she tried to convince Michael of his responsibilities as a husband and father and to get him to step up and be a provider to give their child a father to look up to who would look after his family. Michael didn't even bother. He made a half-hearted attempt in a few brief periods working as a caretaker in a convent, but once this came to an end, so with it did Michael Bambrick's employment career, and he was never to work full-time again. Instead, Marie went out to work as a cleaner to make ends meet for the family, whilst Michael found a new pastime. In April 1974, Marie returned home unexpectedly early from work one afternoon and was horrified to find her husband dressed in her clothes. He was peering into the bathroom mirror wearing a dress, high heels and was applying lipstick. Now obviously, as it would be with anyone to find their other half like that out of the blue, this came as a shock to Marie. Cross-dressing wasn't discussed very much in 1970s Northern Ireland. It was hardly something that advice about was widespread at the time, and it wasn't as understood or recognised as it is today. After a furious row, Marie gave Michael the ultimatum that he would have to seek professional advice for his transvestism, to which he agreed to, and he began a series of weekly appointments at the Mater Hospital. He attended just three of these appointments before he stopped bothering going. One night soon after he stopped going, he woke Marie in the middle of the night, stood over the bed dressed in a blouse and a skirt and fully made up. In his hands he held a pair of tights, which he proceeded to wrap around her neck and stuff the ends down her throat, causing her to choke. Marie was unable to move as Michael knelt astride her and blacked out as he pulled hard on the tights. He didn't kill her however, but when she awakened Michael immediately demanded sex with her. She refused at first because she was bleeding from the mouth because of the attack, so his solution was to drag his terrified young wife downstairs, where he filled a cup of water and forced her to drink it. The terrified woman was then forced to submit to a bizarre sex session. The following day, Marie decided that this incident was enough to convince her that for the safety of her and Alan, she would have to leave. A few days later, she moved out with the child, and never again had any contact with Michael. She didn't report this incident to the Garda, surprisingly, and Michael never bothered to go and look for her or his son either. A few weeks later, in June 1974, 
Michael enlisted in the army, and following his basic training was assigned to the 2nd Infantry Battalion at Kattelbrugge Barracks in Rathmines. His military career lasted less than two months, as he went AWOL shortly after his first posting and fled back to his parents' home. Some months later, on the 20th of March 1975, he had a surprising change of heart and surrendered himself to military police as a deserter and was returned to his unit. Realising that he was fooling himself and he hadn't in fact had a change of heart about going back, he was back over the barracks wall the same night and this time he never bothered going back. He still to this day remains officially a deserter from the army. Shortly after this, he decided to call unannounced on a friend of Marie's who had known the couple well and arrived at 9.30 one morning at the woman's home. Although she was surprised to see him, she made him a cup of tea but told him that she was due out shortly for an appointment. She had to again remind him that she was due out for an appointment when he showed no signs of leaving and as she got up to go, he accosted her and began to kiss her. He warned her that if she screamed, he would kill her and the baby. Then he dragged her into the bedroom, where he stripped and indecently assaulted her. Before leaving, he again warned her that he would kill both her and her child if this was reported to the Garda. The Garda were informed though, and Michael was arrested, charged and convicted in July 1975 of indecent assault. He was given just a six-month suspended prison sentence and was bound to the peace for 12 months for this. Now, from the sounds of him so far, I believe a psychiatric order would have been much more beneficial, don't you agree? Following this, Michael returned to live with his parents in Ballyfermot. Here he slipped back into the routine that he'd had as a younger man, vegetating around the house, but now also drinking heavily, much to the chagrin of his despairing parents and brother. In 1978, Michael's father died and his mother followed just two years later in 1980, leaving Michael all alone in the house as his brother Kevin had married and moved out some years before. He was transferred to a flat in Teresa's gardens shortly after his mother's death and it was not long after he'd moved here that he met Patricia McGorley. They became a couple not long after meeting and just a few months later Patricia had moved in with Michael their lifestyle centering around alcohol and the pub. On the 21st of August 1984, the couple had their first child, Adrienne, and two years later they moved into a larger house, number 57 St. Ronan's Park. In 1990, the couple's second child, Louise, came along to make the dysfunctional family complete. Now having two young children did nothing to curb the heavy drinking on Michael's part, although the consensus was that Patricia at least did cut down on her alcohol intake following the birth of her children, and was by all intents and purposes a loving and caring mother. But neither she or Michael could ever get away completely from the lure of alcohol, and inevitably this would lead to violent and frequent rows. So the row on the evening of Wednesday, September the 11th, 1991 had started when the couple had decided to go drinking at a local pub. They'd left the two children at the home of their grandmother and had gone out in the early evening. By midnight they were still drinking, Michael having had several pints of Guinness and Patricia several pints of strong lager. At 12.30am they collected the children from the grandmother's and returned home by taxi to 57 St. Ronan's Park. Now that evening in the pub, a row had started because Patricia had wanted to leave earlier than they had done to collect the children, 
but Michael had wanted to stay and continue drinking. The row had calmed by the time they picked the children up, but it was to flare up again when they got into the house, this time over a lack of cigarettes. He refused to go out and get any more, and the row became so heated that it woke neighbours up. Eventually, it was pacified when a solitary cigarette was found in the front room that both shared before going to bed. What followed was a sequence of events that are uncertain, and much was largely relied on Bambrick's version of what had happened. Some of what happened was corroborated by neighbours of the couple in statements to police, however. Bambrick was much later to claim to the Garda the following. The couple had gone to bed and had decided to have sex as the best way to pacify a row and to make up, and Bambrick had tied Patricia's hands behind her back with a pair of tights. He claimed that she allowed him to do this to her sometimes, but not as often as he would have liked because it was very much his kink and not hers. He said that after tying her hands behind her, he put the tights into her mouth and tied them around the back of her head. In the midst of this bondage session, he claimed that he heard Patricia gasping for air, but he had no inclination to immediately remove the tights from her mouth or release them and untie her. He claimed that he panicked and it didn't occur to him to do this. Instead, he ran downstairs to grab some scissors and cut the tights off her, but according to Bambrick, Patricia had suffocated and died almost immediately. At no time did he summon any help or medical assistance, and given what had happened with his wife many years earlier, plus his own admission that this was a practice that he liked to do regularly because he got off on it, it is unlikely that he panicked in any way here. Most likely is that he was a lying bastard trying to cover up the fact that he had strangled his long-term partner. Instead of calling the authorities, Bambrick instead dragged Patricia into the small front bedroom of the house feet first and locked the door behind him. He then went back to bed. The next morning, waking the children and telling them that their mother was out working for a friend of theirs called Auntie Joan for a few days, Bambrick took the two girls to their school at Warren Mount and then went to the caretaking course that he was enrolled upon under threat of having his social welfare payments stopped. After his course, and when the children had finished school for the day, he called at Patricia's mother's house to collect her social payment money, and then went home with the two girls. He seemed totally calm, unfazed, and not worried in the slightest by what had happened, and what he now had to do. He had to get rid of Patricia's body. Bambrick's disposal of his long-term partner's body makes for disturbing listening, and is repeated here in a somewhat sanitised version. The following morning, when the girls had gone to school and locking himself into the bedroom where Patricia's body lay, Bambrick had decided that the best way to get rid of the body would be to dismember it into as many pieces as possible. He used a paper knife to cut through the skin across the joints and then took a hacksaw severing the bones at the shoulders and the tops of the legs. He removed the hands and feet from the limbs and then he removed Patricia's head. His final act and one that makes it difficult to believe that this was simply the work of someone acting purely out of fear of discovery, was to sever both breasts with the knife. Now it's unlikely that this was in any way a practical measure for dismemberment, it's more likely that the disturbed Bambrick gained some sort of perverse pleasure from doing this, or else why do it? The body parts, the legs, arms and head, hands, feet, breasts, were then placed into a sturdy rubble sack 
and the remainder was placed into another bag that was then wrapped in a towel and some plastic sheeting. Later that night, he removed the gruesome bundles into the back garden and dragged them along to the wall at the bottom of the garden. Sometime earlier that day, he'd parked his bicycle in the footpath on the other side of the wall, and he now threw the bag containing the severed limbs over the wall and climbed over it himself. In what must have been an extremely difficult feat, Bambrick then picked up the heavy awkward bag and balancing it on his pushbike, cycled a mile to a refuse site at Balgadi. Once here, he removed the body parts from the bag and covered them with clay. He then cycled home and the next day he returned with a bag containing Patricia's torso and placed it deep into a large pile of rubbish bags, secreting it in the middle. He then used other refuse bags to further cover and hide the limbs that he'd covered in clay the previous evening. By now it was three days since Patricia's gruesome death and it was just beginning to dawn on Bambrick that somebody may by now notice her absence. So the next day he went and reported that it was missing to Garda at Bridewell Station. He told them that he hadn't seen Patricia since the previous Thursday, the 12th of September, claiming that she'd left their home alone to head into town that evening for a drinking session and she'd never returned. She was well known for being away for a day or two when she was on a session as she sometimes went and stayed with her mother, Bambrick claimed, but she'd never been away for this long before. He said that on the Friday and Saturday he'd be making inquiries around various pubs that he and Patricia frequented regularly around the city centre looking for her but to no avail. After giving police a description of Patricia's clothing, black skirts, white sandals, mustard coloured and black spotted mohair top, Bambrick left and Garda started a missing persons investigation. Not knowing just how futile the inquiry was even before it began, Garda first spoke to Patricia's estranged husband John McGauley. He was of course unable to help and he told them that he'd not seen his wife for more than six months. After carrying out more routine inquiries, centred around pubs in the city centre, the investigation had failed to shed any light on Patricia's disappearance and that was seemingly the end of the matter. It took her mother asking Garda to circulate details of Patricia to other forces as she was so concerned for her whereabouts and for them to do some more and unbelievably it was the 13th of October 1991, more than a month after the death, that Garda finally visited Michael Bambrick at 57 St Ronan's Park to get a statement from him concerning Patricia's disappearance. During the visit to the squalid house, one of the Garda noticed apparent bloodstains on a mattress in the main bedroom, and when inquiring about it, Bambrick had told them that they were from a miscarriage that Patricia had had the previous year, a story that was accepted. Bambrick then told the same story that he'd given when he reported Patricia as missing, but this time he added the story of the furious row the couple had had the night before. Yet many couples row, and this was no proof of anything, and Bambrick and Patricia were often furiously rowing, something that was confirmed by neighbours. Mary O'Neill, a neighbour who lived two doors down from them, remembered the row of the early hours of September the 12th clearly, and when she was spoken to by Garda, she told them how the row had lasted for about three hours, and described it as all hell breaking loose. The next morning, she claimed that she didn't see any of the family from number 57, but at about 8.45pm that evening, she heard footsteps outside. When Mary looked through the window, she saw somebody she thought to be Patricia walking past the gate. She was sure about this because she remembered remarking to her daughter 
about Patricia having no shame being out in public after causing such a public spectacle the night before. Mary and her daughter watched as Patricia, wearing a black skirt, white sandals and mustard-coloured cardigan, walked down towards the bus stop at the edge of St Ronan's Park, out of their view. Garda checked with bus crews who'd been working on routes from the Ronanston area into the city centre on the night Patricia had disappeared, as well as making appeals for passengers who may have spotted the missing woman at the crucial time to come forward, but it was to no avail. What Mary, her daughter or the Garda didn't know was that the person they'd seen walk past that night that they believed to be Patricia was in fact Michael Bambrick. It was all part of his plan to plant the seed that Patricia was still alive and to give credence to his claim that she disappeared of her own free will. He dressed in some of her clothes and walked along the avenue, making sure that the high heels clattered enough for curtain twitchers to do their nosy neighbour bit. In the dark, it was impossible to tell that this wasn't Patricia. As the weeks following her disappearance turned into months, and with all inquiries exhausted one by one, the missing persons investigation was scaled down and Bambrick was seemingly in the clear. By July 1992, some ten months later, he'd all but forgotten his common-law wife. There was no further investigation into her disappearance and Patricia's daughters and family were left to grieve and wonder what had happened to her. On Thursday the 23rd of July 1992, Michael Bambrick went drinking in pubs on Dublin's Francis Street in the company of his seven-year-old daughter, Adrienne. By now, he'd gone back to business as usual, and his youngest daughter was in the care of Patricia's younger sister, her godmother. That evening, in Carr's pub, he met a woman by the name of Mary Cummins, a fellow heavy drinker like himself. Like Michael, she too was in the pub with her five-year-old daughter, and while the two children played together, the two adults got to know each other. Similar to Patricia, Mary too had had a hard and unhappy life. In 1992 she was 35 years old and had spent the first four years of her life in Dublin's St Patrick's Orphanage before she was fostered by Robert and Bridget Cummins in 1960. Home life was never to be a happy one however as the Cummins was a household where domestic violence flowed as freely as the alcohol did. Perhaps inevitably, this had an impact on the young girl, for when she reached adulthood, she too sadly came to have a reliance upon alcohol. By the time Mary was aged 19, both senior Cummins were dead, and their home had been sold for £5,000, which was split evenly between Mary and her adopted sister. By this time, sadly, alcohol dependence had strongly taken hold of Mary, and the money which in 1975 could have been put towards a good start for the future, was soon all spent. Mary also at this time moved into a series of relationships with different men, and by 1978 was living in Finglass with a man who she went on to have three children with. This man, who was also a heavy drinker, had passed away in 1984, and in his will had left Mary a total of £5,285 which he'd received in September 1986 following the sale of the house in which they'd lived. Through a combination of heavy drinking and loans to so-called friends and acquaintances, the account that she'd deposited this sum in was down to just 86 pence two months later. Mary had also begun to neglect her children more and more as she continued the string of short-term relationships with different men and moved in with them, only to move out a short time later 
when the relationship inevitably ended. Because of this chaotic constant upheaval, the children had no sense of security and by late 1986 all three children had been permanently taken into care. Even following the loss of her children, Mary continued in this cycle over the next few years and by the time 1992 rolled around, she had another child of five years old called Samantha and was living in a squalid flat in Nicholas Street. She was still drinking heavily and frequently in the city centre pubs and it was here in Carr's pub on the 23rd of July 1992 that she met Michael Bambrick. As the two were drinking, early that evening one of Mary's friends came to the pub to collect Mary's daughter to babysit for her for the evening. It was a usual arrangement as Thursdays were the day that Mary received her benefits and she liked to make the most of a night out when she had the money to do so. Shortly afterwards, Mary left the pub with Bambrick and his daughter, who she invited back to her flat. As they chatted while she put away shopping, he invited her to head back to St. Ronan's Park with him, and she accepted. All three got a taxi back to St. Ronan's Park, where Adrienne was left with a neighbour whilst Mary and Bambrick went out drinking. By the time they returned, it was well after chucking out time in the pubs. Adrian was in bed but not asleep and after the babysitter had been paid and had gone home and Adrian had been got off to sleep, Mary and Bambrick were left alone. Again, the following events have no witness and the only account available is that given by Michael Bambrick. It is an almost mirror image of what happened to Patricia McGorley. Bambrick claims that once Adrian was in bed asleep, he and Mary began kissing and heavy petting on the sofa and they began to engage in sex games. He tied her hands behind her back with a belt then stuffed tights into her mouth and wound them around her head, securing them. During this bondage, he then began performing a number of sex acts upon her and as he was doing so, he claimed, Mary had choked on the gag, much like Patricia had. He was to later say how he had then panicked, yet again, and had dragged Mary's dead body upstairs and back into the box room, where it was again locked in and left until the following day. The next day, Bambrick took Adrian to school, then returned and for the second time in less than a year, readied himself for the gruesome task that lay ahead. This time, he simply severed Mary Cummins' legs at the hip joints and placed the limbs into a refuse bag, and the rest of the body was stuffed unceremoniously into another large rubble sack, and that evening, under cover of darkness, he again dumped the body. This time, perhaps finding it was too cumbersome transporting a chopped up corpse by bicycle, he used a wheelbarrow instead. He moved both bags of dismembered body parts to the corner of an open field near to Balgadi School, which is about half a mile away from where less than a year before he disposed of the body of his common-law wife. The corner of the field had long been used as a rubbish dump and before discarding the body, he removed Mary's clothes and took them home to burn, then hid the body under bags of waste and discarded broken furniture. Mary was not reported missing for three days. Quite a sad and telling statement really when she had left a five-year-old girl with a friend and it wasn't considered out of the norm when she hadn't returned for her the next day or the day after. It was the 26th of July when she was reported missing by a male friend and a missing persons investigation began. Her flat was searched for possible clues as to where she may have gone, her friends and acquaintances were spoken to and assisted by the dog section, 
Garda made searches of several areas in the path between Mary's flat and the pub where she'd last been seen. It was some time later, whilst detectives were talking to regulars of Carr's pub who'd been in the bar on the evening that Mary was last seen, that the name Michael Bambrick cropped up, and more than one person came forward to see that they'd seen Mary leaving the pub that evening with Bambrick and his daughter. When inquiries into the name Michael Bambrick brought up the red flag that his common-law wife had also gone missing, detectives decided this was far too much of a coincidence to ignore. A full look into Bambrick's background was warranted here, and the more detectives discovered when they looked into his life and character, the more they began to consider the possibilities that both women had come to some harm. Two months after she disappeared, Bambrick was interviewed at length about the disappearance of Mary Cummins. He was to admit meeting a woman matching her description in Carr's pub on the afternoon of the 23rd of July, but he claimed that they'd parted company outside the pub and that he'd returned to St. Ronan's Park on the bus with his daughter. This, he claimed, was the last time he'd seen the woman. When it was put to him that it was strange how two women connected with him had disappeared, Bambrick replied, Yes, isn't it a terrible coincidence? It's just a misfortune and pure bad luck, but I had nothing to do with it. Hard-faced or what? But although detectives did have a hunch that Bambrick knew more than he was telling, plus his previous conviction for indecent assault giving them cause for concern, they had no evidence to go on. No charges could ever be brought on suspicion alone, but it was decided that Michael Bambrick was, from now, a person to keep an eye on. They visited him at home in a bid to put pressure upon him and put it to him that he was involved in both disappearances, but he again was to insist that it was nothing more sinister than a total coincidence. Skip forward now to late 1994. A nine-year-old girl walked through the front door of a police station in the immediate vicinity of St. Ronan's Park with a very, very sad and disturbing tale. She appeared dirty, she looked clearly malnourished, she was very distressed and was accompanied not by a parent but by a male neighbour. Gardo spoke to the girl had to listen to a horrendous story which the girl at first garbled, speaking quickly and without a pause as though she'd bottled stuff up so much and she wanted to get everything off her chest at once. When Adrian Bambrick was calmed and comforted, for it was her who'd come through the door, she told of an awful tale of abuse and neglect at the hands of her father. She was coming out with things like he'd killed her pets, he'd beaten her, and at one time had even left her alone at 57 St. Ronan's Park for a period of four days. He often didn't feed her regularly, and she often had to resort to stealing food from the kitchen and secreting it in her bedroom, because, it was claimed, he would bolt and lock the kitchen door to prevent her getting something to eat. What a piece of work, eh? What an absolute scumbag. This tale of abuse and cruelty, and there were much worse things, said I'm sure, it shocked officers, and the girl was taken at first to her aunt's house, who was already caring for her younger sister, and then she was taken to her godparents' house, where she was to remain and was safe and cared for. The child was obviously terrified of being in that house with her father, the loosest possible use of the term there. And while she was taken to safety, officers immediately went around to number 57 to investigate these claims. And there was no one in when officers arrived, 
but one look through the downstairs windows of the house told officers that this was no healthy, happy or safe environment for a child, or a pig from the sounds of it. Ignoring the strong stench of urine that was coming from the hallway of the house, a view through the kitchen window showed a picture of extreme filth. There was dirty crockery and pans on all surfaces, and the bits of unit that could be seen were caked with extreme filth crawling with insects, with the sink, walls and floor also covered in grime. The living room was sparse and pretty much in the same state as the kitchen, with cigarette butts, litter and feces as far as the eye could see. So Garda decided that they should contact social services immediately. But social services were only too aware of the Bambrick household. They already had a file filled with horrors such as reports of him locking his daughter in the garden shed for a trivial matter, killing her pet in a fit of rage by throwing them against a wall and beating the girl for taking a slice of bread from the kitchen. They had no less than 13 different statements from people who had come forward outlining neglect and abuse. And yet that poor child was still in that household. Serious, serious wrongdoing there, surely. I mean, what needs to happen for authorities to step in? How many times have you heard horror stories like this? It just, I find it heartbreaking. I really do. The courage that it had taken for Adrienne to come forward impressed officers, but what also impressed them was a recollection of the night Mary Cummins had vanished, because it was steeped in detail. It also provided testimony that was to contradict Michael Bambrick's version of the events of that night. She told officers how her father was a regular at Carr's pub, and that she'd often be there with him, even being able to name some of his friends there. She expressly remembered the night that her father was drinking with Mary Cummins, as she remembered playing with her daughter Samantha. Samantha had then been collected by a woman in a blue van, the neighbour who looked after her on Thursday nights, and Adrian had been left playing alone whilst her father and Mary continued drinking. All three of them had left and then gone back to Mary's flat in Nicholas Street, and she remembered that when they got back there, Mary had placed away shopping that she'd bought that day, then changed her clothes, and all three had travelled back to St Ronan's Park by taxi. What made her certain about this was that Mary had given the girl a promotional Coca-Cola flask, probably from the sounds of it a rare act of kindness in this poor child's life, and therefore memorable. Inquiries revealed that the flask was still at the house, it was one of a limited number, and one of a set that had been given to Mary Cummins by her nephew some months before she disappeared. Adrienne further remembered that she had still been up when her father and Mary arrived back from the pub that evening and had been put to bed. When she awoke in the morning, Mary wasn't there, and Adrienne expressed surprise that Mary had left her shoes behind, which Bambrick subsequently burned. When she was shown a photograph of Mary Cummins, Adrienne unhesitatingly identified her as the woman in question. So this not only provided a definite link between Bambrick and Mary, but it suggested also that he'd lied from the start about his movements following leaving the pub. Add to that the disappearance of his common-law wife and his past conviction, and Garda were now certain that both women had come to harm at the hands of Michael Bambrick. So following Adrian's statement, the continuing inquiries into the physical abuse and neglect that had been continuing parallel now had enough evidence to arrest Bambrick in connection with these offences. On the afternoon of the 23rd of January 1995, 
Bambrick was arrested outside a pub near Dublin's Four Courts and was taken to Ronanstown Station. Whilst he was under arrest, Bambrick was again questioned over the disappearance of both Patricia and Mary, and he again repeated his previous stories. He'd not seen or heard from Patricia since the night she'd left their house to head into town, and he had left the pub with Mary, but they had gone their separate ways and he and his daughter had gone home on the bus. When detectives asked him for permission to search his house, they were pleased when he granted the permission to do so. Permission was needed due to the peculiar anomalies of Irish law at the time. For some reason, police had no power to search premises that they believed a murder had taken place in unless they believed firearms were involved and they had no legal right to search for bodies on private property. They may suspect or have reasonable grounds to suspect that a body may be hidden there, but from a legal point, they couldn't do absolutely anything. That seems quite backward and an unnecessary hindrance really that does and it's a great example of laws that need codifying and refinement which these thankfully were since then. Adrienne was removed permanently from Bambrick's care and was placed to live with her godparents as a result of the investigation although Bambrick did not face any custodial sentence for the abuse and neglect. He was released from custody but still remained the prime suspect in the disappearance of Patricia McGawley and Mary Cummins and the one that Gardner now suspected was a double murderer. They needed to search the place that both women could last be tied to. But detectives were again to hit a stumbling block because Bambrick had now illegally sublet the house in St Ronan's Park to a neighbour and his family. He'd moved away from the area and was now living with another woman who was pregnant by him. This meant that Garda had to now seek the permission of the family who lived in number 57 to search, and this wasn't forthcoming. They were forced to wait until the property was vacated, which was nearly three months later when the family were evicted. The locks were then changed, and the following day, the 12th of April 1995, a search of the house and gardens of number 57 St. Ronan's Park began. In a two-day search of the house and gardens, there was excitement when some bones were discovered in the back garden, but upon examination these were found to be animal bones, most likely one of the pets that Bambrick had killed in a fit of temper. Although there was no conclusive proof that murder had taken place in the house, no detailed confession found or ever or under the rug or something, there were two other discoveries of note found that convinced investigators that this had happened. Positive reactions for blood staining were found on at least 50 of the floorboards in the house, indicating that at some time extreme violence had occurred there, with the majority of these blood stains concentrated in the box room. Also found was the Coca-Cola flask that Adrienne had outlined in her statement and that corroborated her story, but this still wasn't enough to bring any charges against Bambrick. So they decided on another approach. They went to speak to Bambrick's new girlfriend, Stella Mooney, to see if she could help in the inquiry. She told how she'd known Bambrick for only a few months and had met him when she'd been staying with some friends earlier in the year. She had no qualms in telling how Bambrick liked to dress up in women's clothes and had a penchant for kinky sex and bondage, expressly tying her up and gagging her with tights. More disturbing was the tale that she came out with that Bambrick had claimed to her once that he had murdered a girl in Clondalkin. She'd asked him who and how, and crying, he said that he couldn't remember. It was too disgusting, he'd claimed. 
By June 1995, the investigating team had begun to receive more worrying reports about Bambrick as well, one of which was that Bambrick had begun sexually interfering with children. A 15-year-old girl, the daughter of a friend of Bambrick's, came forward to tell that he had indecently groped both her and a friend of hers one afternoon, and then he had indecently assaulted her on yet another occasion. There were also reports that he'd indecently assaulted other children, boys and girls, much younger than this. To add to these worrying claims, Bambrick was also now claimed to be in possession of both a shotgun and a spear gun. The spear gun was confirmed as he'd loaned it to a friend of his. He'd also told many people about the shotgun and there was no reason to disbelieve him. So putting these allegations and claims together and everything else that they knew about Michael Bambrick, and after he was placed under 24-hour surveillance, on the 24th of June 1995, Michael Bambrick was arrested under the Offences Against the State Act on suspicion of possession of unlicensed firearms. The first few hours of his custody period were spent dealing with the relatively straightforward firearms offences, before questioning moved on again to the disappearance of Patricia McGorley and Mary Cummins. He again maintained the story that he'd given numerous times before, but this time Garda had strong evidence to put to him that refuted his claims. Detective Sergeant Pat Linner and Detective Garda Jerry Dillon produced Adrian Bambrick's testimony, to which Bambrick appeared shocked at but could hardly deny especially when they managed to produce the limited edition Coca-Cola flask Adrian had mentioned in his statement and that was part of a limited set found in Mary Cummins's flat. This broke him and just 30 minutes after the interview began, at about 8pm that evening, Michael Bambrick confessed to the murders of Patricia and Mary. Unflinching, he told detectives, I don't know what came over me, I don't know how to explain it. I got enjoyment out of stuffing the tights in their mouths. He outlined the full details of the evenings of both killings that were described here earlier in the episode. He described the murder of both women and how he dismembered and disposed of the bodies. He then offered to show the detectives where he dumped the remains, and two hours later, Bambrick and detectives were stood in the field near Balgadi School where he pointed out a spot in the waste ground where he claimed that he buried both bags that Mary Cummins' remains were in. They then went half a mile to Balgadi Dump, where Bambrick pointed out the lonely spot near a dead tree that he'd buried the legs, arms and head of Patricia, his common-law wife and the mother of his children. Twenty yards away from this, he pointed to another spot where he claimed the rest of the body parts had been secreted. At no time did Bambrick show any emotion or remorse through any of his confessions or pointing out graves. He was to offer no explanation or motive for both murders, apart from that both women had died accidentally as part of a sex game gone wrong, and was to maintain the claim that he'd only acted in disposing of the bodies how he had, because he'd panicked. Yet on the next breath, he was to destroy any credence to this being panic-based, based on his description of a particularly chilling act. A few nights after he'd disposed of Patricia's body, he'd returned to the scene and discovered her head to be sticking out of the ground. His solution was to grab the head, place it on front of him on the ground, and then repeatedly drop a four-inch thick heavy concrete block onto it until the skull was smashed to pieces. He then placed the remains of the head back into the ditch where it had lain and had thrown soil over it. As a result of his confessions, he was charged with the murders of both women and was remanded in custody to await trial. 
The search then got underway for the remains of Patricia and Mary, and despite a painstaking two-week excavation, only a scant few remains of both Patricia and Mary were ever found after so long. It was just a few pieces of Patricia's skull and a rib and part of the tibia of Mary was all that was left, but the few bones found were enough so that a DNA comparison could be made to ascertain that the remains belonged to both women. The rest of the remains had been scattered over a wide area due to natural disturbance and development and origin animals, and both sites were shortly afterwards built upon. If Bambrick hadn't been arrested and confessed when he did, Patricia and Mary would likely never have been found. Whilst on remand in Arbor Hill Prison, Bambrick did seemingly the one decent thing he'd done in his life and he gave his consent to allow his and Stella's child to be adopted when it was born. When he was arraigned at Dublin Central Criminal Court on May the 4th, he denied the murders but pleaded guilty to manslaughter, pleas that were accepted by the state. In October that year, he was sentenced to 18 years imprisonment, which he was to serve in a sex offenders unit in Arbor Hill Jail. Sentencing Bambrick, Judge Paul Carney said of his eventual release, the probability is that he will have a pent-up appetite for this form of bondage, fueled by group fantasising with other sex offenders in Arbor Hill Prison. Detectives who investigated the case were left in no doubt that Michael Bambrick had the potential not only to kill again, but may have possibly killed many times before. He was tentatively linked as a person of interest in the disappearances of several women throughout Ireland in the years preceding his incarceration for murder, although no charges have ever been brought against him for any of these as there is a lack of concrete evidence. However, the lifestyle of both Bambrick's known victims is not unique to just two people. How many people have an existence such as that that go missing and live and exist in circles such as these? And is it possible that Bambrick has killed other women and disposed of them in the same way? Perhaps somewhere that the remains can now never be found. Bambrick was to serve just 13 years of his sentence before he was released from Arbor Hill Jail. Throughout his prison term, he'd been described as a model prisoner and was released for good behaviour in 2009 when he was 57 years old. He looked a marked difference, the years in prison changing his appearance remarkably. Gone was the greasy long hair and matted beard and the foul-smelling clothes. Bambrick was now short-haired, clean-shaven and washed and bespectacled. He adopted a new identity, John Milton, and moved to a part of the north inner city area of Dublin. When it was revealed that he'd been released, it was to cause uproar across the nation, who'd been horrified to read the exploits of Bambrick's crimes at the time of his imprisonment, and believing him to be in immense danger, had hoped that his life sentence would mean just that. An understandable reaction about someone so despicable and disturbed, and I'd no doubt feel the same. Tabloid newspapers identified and exposed Bambrick's new identity in 2016 and a documented report claims that his movements were recorded and that he was approached by reporters from the Irish Sun and challenged as to whether he was a reformed character, was he still a threat and danger, and he was asked to apologise to the families of both of his victims. Bambrick declined to comment, and a female who was with him at the time told reporters in no certain terms to clear off. She did, however, neglect to answer whether she feared for her own safety when she was asked. A resident who lived nearby to where Bambrick was now living 
gave the following statement when speaking to the Irish son. He's very much a loner, but he's often seen walking with a young woman and a baby. We just hope she's being careful. He has been living in the north inner city for quite some time and telling everyone that his name is John and that he's from outside Dublin. But it didn't take people long to establish who he was. And now most people are keeping their distance because they know all about his past. He's still going to sex parties and one homeless woman in the area has already admitted that a number of women have been sleeping with him. He's been seen buying women's clothing and there's no doubts that he still gets his kicks from dressing up as a woman. Everyone is just praying that he doesn't strike again. So how much of this is idle gossip can't be ascertained and to the present day there is no record of Bambrick having offended again. Now I'm all for fairness and rehabilitation, but I think I'd feel the same here. I wouldn't be happy if Bambrick had moved in next door but one to me, I mean, would you? Perhaps that's not me being fair and saying, okay, he served his time, give him a chance, he's a changed man now. But that is me being honest, because I don't believe that he has changed at all, and I don't believe that he was a safe individual to be released after serving only a minimum term. And if the neighbour is to be believed, then he doesn't sound very changed, does he? There were nearly 17 years in between his first known sex crime and the murders of Patricia and Mary, and they are undoubtedly sexually motivated killings. I do acquiesce that sex games can go wrong, and practices of choking during sex games can lead to death, for example in cases of NXS frontman Michael Hutchins, and Bill himself, David Carradine, and whilst it is of course possible that the deaths of Patricia and Mary were as a result of this bondage and restraint between consenting adults gone wrong, we only have Bambrick's account to go on. No bodies were ever available for post-mortem to ascertain just how true his accounts were. And if you weren't planning to kill, then surely any practices would have stopped as soon as you realised your partner was panicking or at least tried to raise help or perform first aid. And to dispose of the body using such intricate and thorough dismemberment is suggestive. Removing the breasts of Patricia suggests to me more of a sexual angle rather than a practical one, and to then transport and conceal the body so well that it was never found without him revealing the location in person. Oh yeah, and to do this twice in less than a year? No, I don't believe that's what's happened here. I don't think it can be put down to alcohol intake either. I think because of its extent and intricacy, the dismemberment and deposition of both bodies was as much as a turn-on as the murders themselves for Bambrick. And apart from the time he admitted to returning and shattering Patricia's skull with a concrete block, I believe that he would have returned to the body sites many times for satisfaction. I also believe that his life and movements over the 17 years between his indecent assault conviction in 1974 and the murder of Patricia McGorley in 1991 should be scrutinised to see if there are any missing persons or cold cases in the area that Bambrick can be potentially connected with and questioned about, because I don't think these were his first and only killings, and certainly not his only offences. I would find that mind-boggling based on what is available to research about the case. I believe that he has been for many years, and remains to this day a very dangerous sexual offender. As he was released in 2009, authorities obviously believe, however, that he no longer poses any threat. 
I think it's fitting to bring this tale to a close with an extract from an article concerning Bambrick that was written by crime author Terry Prone in an article written for the Irish Herald just days before Bambrick was to be released. Men filled with rage against women do not lose their rage in prison. If they're in prison long enough, they may become too old to be dangerous when they're released. But that's about it. Michael Bambrick is not too old to prove the judge who warned that he might kill again on release, right? Outside of the prison system, he could easily find a lonely woman who knows nothing of his background, and the moment she fancies him, she may be in danger, because, no matter which way you slice it, Bambrick is either a man who likes killing women, or he's a man with such a violent approach to sex, that death of a partner is a likely consequence. The fear is that that makes him a danger the moment he exits our prison system. I guess that time will tell. So what do you think then guys? Is Michael Bambrick or John Milton as he's apparently known now? Is he still a danger to the public or has he been reformed? I hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode. Bit of a grisly and shocking tale I know but one I'd never heard of and so it was an obvious choice for the blackboard when I came across it. As always I'm intrigued as to what you guys think of the case and I invite some debate and discussion on the thread up now in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group on Facebook, or contact via the usual social media channels. The same for anyone interested in supporting the show through the Patreon site, or who's willing to leave a very kind review of the show on any of the various platforms. It really all does help, and all links are up there in this week's show notes. I'll be back next week on True Crime Thursday with another episode, undecided yet as to the running order of which case it will be. Maybe a case of shuffling stuff around due to one thing or another this week, but it will all become apparent. I hope that you can join me then anyway. I've been Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, and thanks very much for joining me guys. Take care all, be safe, and I shall speak to you soon. Goodbye for now.